Uh, hey, let's pray, and then I'm going to, uh, I want to read uh, something from a, uh, a news blast I got today, and then we'll uh, jump into our study tonight. So let's pray. Father, tonight as we pray, we just uh, ask you'll guide our conversations, guide our thoughts, allow us to uh, really put our arms around what it means to uh, follow you in a radical kind of a way. And God, we pray that the illustration of the book, illustration that we're going to give tonight in Scripture, will guide us in that, and we give you praise. We ask you, Holy Spirit, in your presence to be powerful here. God, that we would be, uh, we would just lift up in each one of us, Father, that, uh, that commitment you've called us to, to follow Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. The relative said... ISIS militants on August 7th captured the Christian workers in a village whose name is withheld for security reasons. On August 28th, the militants asked if they had renounced Islam for Christianity. When the Christians said they had, the rebels asked if they wanted to return to Islam. The Christians said they would never renounce Christ. The 41-year-old team member, his young son, and two ministry members in their 20s were questioned at one village site where ISIS militants had summoned a crowd. The team leader presided over nine house churches he helped to establish. His son was two months away from his 13th birthday. In front of the team, the relatives in the crowd, the Islamic extremists cut off the fingertips of the boy and severely beat him, telling the father they wouldn't stop the torture, would stop the torture only if he, the father, returned to Islam. When the team leader refused, relatives said the ISIS militants also tortured and beat him and the other two ministry workers. The three men and the boy then met with their deaths in crucifixion. All were brutally, uh, were badly brutalized and then crucified, the ministry leader said. They were, uh, they were left on the crosses two days. No one was, was allowed to remove them. The martyrs died beside signs the ISIS militants had put up, identifying them as infidels. Eight other team members, including two women, were taken to the side of the village on the 28th and were asked the same questions before the crowd. The women, ages 29 to 33, tried to tell ISIS militants that they were only sharing the peace and the love of Christ and had asked what they had done wrong to deserve the abuse. The extremists then publicly raped the women who continued to pray during the ordeal, leading the ISIS militants to beat them all the more furiously. The two women and six men knelt before uh, they were beheaded. They were all praying. Villagers said that some were praying in the name of Jesus. Others said they were praying the Lord's Prayer. Others said that they lifted up their heads to commend their spirits to Jesus. The ministry director said one of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said Jesus. After they were beheaded, their bodies were hung on crosses. The ministry director said, his voice breaking, he had uh, trained all the workers for their evangelistic ministry and had baptized a team member and some of the others. Hundreds of former Muslims in a Syrian village were in danger of being captured and killed uh, by ISIS, which is fighting to establish a caliphate in, the, uh, uh, in which apostasy is punished by death. The underground church in the region has mushrooms since June 2014 when ISIS began terrorizing those who do not swear allegiance to the caliphate. Both non-Muslims and Muslims, consequently, the potential for large-scale executions has grown along with the gains in the ISIS-controlled territory. Can I just hold that thought? I want to read something else to you. The Muslim, a Muslim whose name is withheld for security reasons, went to a Christian meeting with the intention of killing the aid worker gathered there. Some, something kept him from following through on his plan, though that, um, and that 
that night he saw Jesus in a dream, the ministry director said. The next day when he came back, I came to kill you, but last night I saw Jesus and I wanted to know what you are teaching. Who is this one who, who held me up from killing you, the director said. He received Christ with tears, and today he's actually helping in the church, helping out other people. We're praying for lots of such Saul's to change into Paul's. You know, I wanted to read that to you, not because you haven't heard about it, but I wanted to bring you back to what this is about, this talk we're doing on radical Christianity. And if you... If you Put in your own mind, what would be radical for you to live out your Christian faith? What would that look like? You know, what would be something radical for you? Would it be sharing your faith? You know, would it be, you know, doing something that m- people might look at and say, wow, that's really odd or unusual? What would it be? Um, we had some sheets. Did Are those been pat? Everybody got a, a worksheet here? Okay, Stan needs one. If you've got those near you, if you could h- hand them out to everybody. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about radical Christianity, and this is lesson two. How many of you here last uh, last time with Rabbi Jason? Any great? Yeah, he's great. He's going to be back and do some more teaching for us. So we're excited to have him as a part of the the teaching team. So um, I want you to turn in your Bibles or look on your sheet if you want to do it that way. You can. In just a minute, I am going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Okay. But right now we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 30. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. You know, that scripture is one of those scriptures of revelation, isn't it? It's, it's a scripture that where God is saying, I'm going to speak to you probably in a time when you don't expect it, in a way you don't expect it. You know, one of the great uh, truths that you see in Scripture and you see in history of the church and the persecuted church especially, you see this promise that that don't worry so much about what you're going to say when you find yourself in that situation. You really can't fully prepare for it, but God will give you what you need. What our role is is to prepare for that moment in terms of what we put into our soul and into our spirit, how we invest in ourselves in the Word of God. You know, and, and if we're not investing in the Word, you know, we, we kind of take for granted we have a Bible, we can go look it up. If we don't know where it is, we got a concordance at the back, we got a computer, we got a smartphone, we got some way that we can get that information. What if you didn't have it? What if tonight, this was the, this was the task, tonight I give you a blank piece of paper, as many people, uh, pieces, uh, pieces of paper as you want, and you have to write down everything you can remember in, from Scripture. Every story, every verse, everything. How many pages would you need? Right? Now, you know, and let's say there's no time limit. It's like, a, it's like, you know, we got all night. And, you know, over time, you'd start thinking about another verse. You'd start thinking about a story. You'd start writing it down. How much would you have by the time you said, you know, I cry uncle, I'm done. I can't find any more verses. What if that's all you had? You know, is that day going to come to America? Maybe not, you know. But what if it did? What if you needed that? What if you just started really simple now investing the Word of God in you, maybe a verse at a time, a verse at a time. You just say, you know what, that was a good point. That was kind of shocking. I mean, it would almost be fun to do, wouldn't it? I mean, how, how well do you think you'd do? 
You know, there was a time in my life where I was really super committed to Scripture memory. And, you know, given the right set of circumstances, given the right prompting, you know, I can pull up a lot of Scriptures, right? But I'm not nearly as as fine-tuned as I once was. I remember I was memorizing books at a time, you know, and, uh, and, and that's a big task. But it's a bigger task to try to recall them over time if you're not kind of putting them back in your life. Here's a quote from the, the book, The Heavenly Man. By the way, some of you have asked, what's our assignment in The Heavenly Man book? Uh, read as much as you, you feel like reading. It's too big a book for you to read in five weeks. So it's either going to look really nice sitting on your table and people are going to go, oh, that's an interesting title, or you're going to jump into a little bit. But here's, here's one quote out of it. He said, the Lord again reminded me of his call to preach the gospel to the West and the South. God's grace is sufficient for me, and his ways are higher than ours. We must submit ourselves to God and embrace whatever he allows to happen. Okay? I, I pull it up just in the context of what we're talking about with this thing that I read earlier. Just what is God going to do? I don't know. But I want to be ready to be radical for Jesus. Amen? So tonight we're going to talk about submission, the yoke of the kingdom. How many of you know what a yoke is? Anybody know what a yoke is? It's that thing that's in an egg, right? Is that a yoke? Okay, somebody tell us what a yoke is. Okay, Dan? Okay. Okay, everybody hear that? Okay. All right, what else, Jack? Okay. All right. Okay. Good. All right. Anything else about a yoke? Yeah. It it restricts. You're you're confined to it, right? And did Jesus remember? Jesus made a reference to a yoke. What did he say? Anybody remember? He said it it fits really well, right? And it's light or easy. It's different than the yoke you've been wearing. In other words, everybody's going to wear a yoke, right? I mean, that's kind of what it says. You're going to have a yoke, either one of a burden or one of lightness and freedom, and you get to choose the yoke you have. Now, Paul picks up on that idea of a yoke, and what did he say about a yoke? Anybody remember? Don't be unequally yoked. Remember that one? Anybody know what that was all about? Unequally yoked. Yeah, it was talking about marriage, and what about marriage? Yeah, it, so if you're, you know, it, it's basically saying when you get ready to get married, you should marry a believer because you will be unequally yoked. Now, what makes that really powerful is that in the Old Testament, it was forbidden to hook up two different animals to one yoke. You couldn't put like an ox and a donkey, for example, because you would cripple one. That yoke would actually cripple the other one. So what it's saying to you as as a believer, if you marry an unbeliever, you're going to be crippled, you know, and a lot of people go into marriage. I mean, I, I've done, I don't know how many weddings, you know, more than I can count. I don't know how many cakes I've eaten and how many, you know, first dances I've witnessed, you know, and they're all fun, but, but on the other hand, you know, so many times um, people will go into that 
and 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 they're both say they're believers, you know. So you got to take them at their face value. I'm a believer. I'm a believer. But you know, in the ones that I really kind of suspect, you know, like I'm not sure this guy is, and I'll maybe say to the guy or the gal, I, "Are you sure this guy really knows God? Are you sure? Do you see fruit in their life?" You know, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and you know, and I know this marriage is going to be really good for us. And and I, when they say something like that, it's going to really going to bring out the best. I know what they're saying is, I can fix him or I can fix her. And inevitably, it comes back to you're not going to fix anybody. Marriage was not made as an evangelistic, you know, a crusade to try to get somebody saved. You know, you're not going to. I mean, it's hard enough just to when two believers are are married, right? They got to get along. So so what happens is you can actually cripple. So we're going to talk about the yoke of the kingdom of God. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22 tonight, Matthew 22, and I'm going to pick up the story. I've just got one verse in there, but I'm going to pick up the story a little bit earlier and verse 34. So you're in Matthew 22 and verse 34, but the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. Now these Sadducees and the Pharisees are these two religious groups. They had basically a different philosophical perspective. Pharisees were more of the conservative. Sadducees were a little bit more liberal. For example, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were so sad, you see. I know, not very good, all right? Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. So he didn't want an answer. He wanted to test him. I'll suggest to you that most of the times an unbeliever asks you a question, they're not trying to get information. They're trying to test you. They're trying to corner you. They're trying to make you look a little bit. So be, be ready. Think about how Jesus answers people. I mean, he really had, it was the expert in it, right? He said, uh, then one of the lawyers saying to him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Well, what a great question. What's the great commandment in the law? Well, if you're a Pharisee, you've been studying the Torah since you were very young, right? You ought to know what it has to say. So why are you asking this question? Well, the obvious answer is we're asking it because we want to test you. We want to make you look bad. Anybody got a couple of those sheets you can pass back here? Okay. Um, good evening, guys. Good to see you. Okay, so here's the question. Jesus said, you want to know what the answer is? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why do you think he put that second part in? Yeah. Okay, good, good. Anything else? Because they asked, what's the first and great commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4. But he said, and let me just tell you, I've got another one for you. The second one, you didn't ask about this. I'm going to give you more than you asked for because you know why? You're not loving me as a brother. You're trying to test me as an enemy. This was a direct dig on the part of Jesus to them. He was doing more than just trying to give us some really cool stuff to live by. He was also saying, 
Are you guys really living out what you're asking about? I don't think so. Because if you did, I'm your neighbor. Why aren't you loving me right now? So the second is like unto it, and on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets, which was really important because everything was going to be built around those two things, the law and the prophets and, and how you respond to them, the whole revelation of God. Okay, let's go to this, uh, this next verse. It's on your sheet. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Okay. So when we're talking about radical Christianity, it is radical to love God like that. Because if I ask you, if we, if, we just, if we just did a little survey here and we had complete honesty, and I said, do you love God with all your heart? Right now, all your heart, 100% of your heart, you know, you might say, you know, boy, I really try to, or some days I do, or I'd like to think I do, or, or if we had a little meter, let's say we had a baloney meter, Right? The baloney meter said, you know, we could hook it up to you, and it would actually test the real. And it says, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? And you go, er, bing, bing, bing. You got about a 60. I mean, could you, could you put your arms around that for a minute? How about with all your mind or your soul or your strength? So we're going to talk tonight a little bit about this, and I've got some fill-in-the-blanks for you. Hopefully I can answer all the fill-in-the-blanks, and it'll kind of keep you alert since there's no coffee tonight, right? Okay, here's the first one. The command to love. The command to love. Do you ever think about you're commanded to love? Do you know that psychologists tell us we cannot command love? You can't command love. Now, just put a little note there by, your, uh, by that scripture there. Put it around uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I believe it's verses 5 and 6. And it says this. It says, and God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God. That's a command, isn't it? But what happens before you love the Lord your God? What does it say? And God will what? Circumcise your heart. So circumcision is taking something off that's not necessary. God says, I'm going to take something off your heart that you don't need, and when I do, you're going to have the capacity to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So right now, if Christ really lives in your heart, going back to the illustration of these, these workers, these Christian workers that were crucified, okay, if God really lives in your heart, do you think you could say to anyone, I don't love God or I'll deny Jesus as a Christian? I don't think you can. I really don't think you can. I think you might want to to save your life. I think if God really lives in you, you, are, you know there's something that's so radically changed inside of you, say, I won't deny Jesus. I won't. Now, you say, I don't really know what I'd do in that situation. I've kind of got a sneaking suspicion. If you really know him, you're going to say, I won't deny Jesus. Because God changed your heart and gave you the capacity to love him even when, you know, even when you're in the pressure and threat of death. Now, you say, well, I've heard of Christians that denied him. No, you've heard of people who profess to be Christians who denied him. I mean, if you look back, there's a, there's a book. It's a, kind of an old book now, but it was called Fox's Book of Martyrs, and it, it basically just kind of traces the martyrs of the church. You know, and you look at those guys, and, and you know, you just see in women how they, they would not deny Jesus, right? What do you think of that? You think that's true? Does that make sense to you? 
in, in, uh, in, in the Bible is pretty clear. So when we talk about it, Jesus did the opposite of what the Pharisees expected him to do. So if you fill in the blank, it's the opposite. He did the opposite of what they expected, right? What did they expect him to say? He, they expect him just to quote the Shema from, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Just quote it. But what he did was he took some strength to that, he empowered that, and he turned it back to them. You see, until we take the Word of God and it turns back into us and it says, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with what I just told you? Are you going to love your neighbors yourself? Because you've got a lot of self-love going on over here, Pharisee. How about your neighbor? You've got an equal kind of love going on for them? And, and, and what about, what was the big question that Jesus asked, uh, you know, uh, about the, on, in the Good Samaritan story? What was the big question? Anybody remember? What? Yeah, who's my neighbor? Let's get that one clear because that guy lives next door to me, but I don't like him. He's not neighborly. Right? So who is my neighbor is, becomes the question. Um, how about this next one? The commitment of our love. The commitment of our love. So we've got a command to love. We, we, we've kind of established that I think most of us or all of us believe that we wouldn't deny Christ even in the threat of death, but now we've got to make a commitment to love. And so as we start to think about this commitment to love, love, uh, love exhibited by the will, by the mind, and by the emotions rather than love exhibited by feelings or emotions. What is it you love tonight? Just shout it out. What do you love tonight? Thank you, my brother. What else do you love? What do you love? I love tacos. Right? I, I, you know, I mean, I love having a car where I can get places. I love you. I love this church. I love, you know, I love a lot of things. And we use that word pretty lightly, don't we? You know, what do you love? I love a lot of stuff. I love Virginia. Virginia's for lovers. I mean, you know, you think about all the stuff we love. We love everything. We just don't love everybody. In the heavenly man in chapter uh, 7, he said, for, uh, for, for months we lived like hunted animals, never knowing where we would sleep at night or where we might be hauled away by the authorities. That's commitment. Right? We're going to keep living for God. So let's take our Bibles, turn over to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. And uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that chapter 11, and we're going to, we're going to look at it here. And then I'm going to have somebody here tell us a little bit about that. Okay? We'll volunteer you maybe. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 38. Right, let's go back to verse... Um, Go back to verse 35. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had the trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and even the chains of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin, goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and tormented. Okay? Now, the next verse, okay, verse 38. I want you to just turn to somebody, and I want you to each of you to read that back and forth to one another, okay? So you're going to have to 
You're going to have to get a little bit of community here, my brother. Move over a little bit. And uh, if you want to just one of you read it, that's fine. But I, I want it to be read. I want you to both hear it out loud, okay? Got it? Okay, just verse 38. Okay, now that you've read it to somebody next to you, so why was the world not worthy of them? Go ahead and answer it to the person sitting with you. Why was the world not worthy of these people who were stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain with a sword? Why was the world not worthy? That's what it says, of whom the world was not worthy. Why, were the, why was the world not worthy of them? Okay, what do you think? Somebody shout it out. Why was the world not worthy of them? Because they gave everything up? Okay, why would that make the world not worthy of them then? Okay, holy and sanctified. Keep going. What? Okay, they gave up more. Okay. I mean, all these are right answers. I'm just keep trying to plumb it deeper here. Yeah. Okay. Do you as a Christian feel like that? Or do you feel like you're like second-class citizens on planet Earth? Huh? Yeah, but yeah, but how do you feel? Do you feel differently? Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Oh. Yeah. 
So the world has really just kind of flipped backwards, right? Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians. And, it, yeah, I have verse 13 in there, but I'm going to back you up uh, a little bit earlier than that. Um, and I'm going to take you to uh, verse 9, okay? Verses 9 through 13, of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, okay? <clears throat> For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now, here's a little tongue-in-cheek. He's speaking to the Corinthians. But you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. So Paul was trying to address a, a problem at the, the church at Corinth. The Cor- at, at Corinth, they thought they were, they were kind of filled up with themselves. They were kind of built up with ego. They were proud. They weren't humble. So he uses this kind of literary technique to kind of say, you know, you think you're so great, but let me tell you who we really are. We really are like fools for Christ's sake. And then he goes on to say this here in verse, uh, verse 11. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure. Isn't that good to have that little insight into the Apostle Paul? It wasn't really a, a pretty, you know, it wasn't like the, the luxurious ministry you might think it was. Oh, he's the Apostle, you know. Verse 13, being defamed, we entreat, we have been made as the filth of the world. The off-scouring of all things until now. You know what he does? That, that word off-scouring there is that scum that you scrape out of the bottom of a pan after you've cooked. He said, that's what we are. We're, we've been defamed. We are the filth of the world. You see, and, and, and what God says is, in Hebrews, he says, you know what? That is exactly how the world looks at you. Um, and we get a certain level of respect because we still, our nation is still giving some of that in some circles, right? But think about it worldwide. I mean, you know, what kind of recognition and what kind of praise do Christians normally get? They don't get a whole lot. So if we're living in this world in this tension, the tension that God says you're not worthy of this world, and the other tension is the world says you're the scum of the earth, okay, what are we doing here? What are we doing on planet earth? Okay? That's your question. Okay, go ahead and ask somebody next to you. What are we doing here? What do you think we're doing here? Right? Okay, who's got an answer? What do you think? What are we doing here? What's that? Okay, they hated him. They're going to hate you. That's what Jesus said. Okay, what else? You're not of this world. You see, here's part of the, here's the great truth that's hard for us to get our hands around. It is that we're pilgrims and we're sojourners on the earth. That this is not home. 
you see, and the more it feels like home, the more it gets harder to accept what's going on here. If I go, you know what, I'm not home. I'm not home yet. I like planet Earth. I like my friends and my family. I, I like all that stuff, but I'm not home. I'm visiting. If you ever checked into a hotel, and maybe it was a nice hotel, you say, you know, I'm checked into a hotel, but it's not home, right? Well, I'm living, I had to live there a long time. Okay, so let's say you had to live there a week. Let's say you had to live there a year. It's not home. Have you ever gone on a vacation, and, and it was a great vacation, but you said, boy, it's good to be what? Home. You see, there's something in us that likes home. And there is this heavenly, in this book, The Heavenly Man, there is this tension that's always going on. I want to be home. Paul even told the Philippians, he said, you know, that my desire to be with you is strong, but my desire to be with him is stronger. Because why? I'm not home yet. I heard a story about uh, a missionary couple that had uh, come back from Africa after giving most of their life to missions. And this was years ago. Supposedly it's a true story. I don't know if it is or not. You know, some preacher probably told it and, and kind of made it sound better. But he was, uh, they were on a, on a boat coming back from Africa. And on that same boat was President Teddy Roosevelt. He'd come back from on the same boat from Africa on a big game hunt. And of course, they let the president off first, and he was walking down the plank there with his wife and, you know, the gangway or whatever you call those things that come off of boats. I don't even know. But anyway, he was walking with her, and uh, the president was walking off, and the crowd was cheering, you know, and, and they had the, the big, you know, all the game, you know, they had the big uh, head or whatever they had. They were celebrating and everything else. And, and the man, the missionary, after 50 years, you know, of giving his life and basically penniless probably, he looked at his wife and he said, can you believe that? Look at that. He goes to Africa, shoots big game, and everybody cheers for him. We go to Africa, give our entire life, and there's no one here to even greet us. And the wife looked at him and said, but we're not home yet. See, the accolades of this present life, we all enjoy. Somebody recognizes you, you know, says, hey, job well done, gives you a trophy, gives you a medal. We all enjoy that, right? I mean, there's no denying it. it. feels good to be recognized. But what about the real recognition that's coming when we get home? What motivates you to do what is right and noble? What motivates you to do what is right and noble, no matter, no matter how you may be feeling? Ever thought about it like that? Hold on, my, my computer's not working. There we go. Okay. What motivates you to do what is right and noble no matter how or what you may be feeling. I don't feel like praying. You ever, you ever said that? I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like talking about Jesus to somebody. I was sitting at Starbucks the other morning with a guy from our church, and we were having coffee, and, and we were talking. All of a sudden, some guy right across from me just jumped into our conversation. You ever had that? Just jumped in. You know, started answering the questions. I'm going, what, what, what is going on here, right? He's, he's in my conversation, and, and the guy I was with looked at me and kind of got a big grin on his face, you know. We thought, well, this will kind of go away for a, in a minute. He just kept on. And he's asked, he's talking, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, what happened here, you know? And I thought, you know, I just got to start talking about Jesus. I'm either going to win him over, get him into the fold here, or I'm going to run him off. Something's going to happen here, right? 
And I go, well, you know, talking about God. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. And, and you know, and I thought, it didn't take him more than about a minute and a half to where he was done. Time was out. We started getting into the Jesus talk. Time was out. He was done with our conversation. He go, hey, I got to go, guys. See you later. What was going on there? There's something inside of him that was missing, right? You know? And, and he wasn't willing to kind of to stay with it. This Hebrew word that we talked about earlier, it's akin to the word agape in the Greek language, which is, uh, which is the love, um, which is a love that comes from God. As opposed to like phileo love. You've heard that? Or the city, Philadelphia, it's a, the city of brotherly love. Phileo love is brotherly love. Do you, do you love your brother? Uh, in the end of John's gospel, Peter, uh, John, Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, uh, Peter, do you agape me? Do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. You know I brotherly love you. Jesus said a second time, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. The third time Jesus says, and you can tell Peter's getting agitated at this point. Third time Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? He said, Lord, you know I phileo you. Now what happened there? Peter couldn't understand agape love. He couldn't relate to God on that level. So what did Jesus do? He accommodated himself to, Jesus, to Peter, and he came down to phileo love. He says, if you can't grasp agape love, then do you really love me as a brother? There's going to come a point, Peter, where you're going to understand agape, but you don't understand it yet. I think it's possible to receive agape love from God, but not understand it as a believer. I think you can, you can receive the forgiveness of God. You can even receive that love but not know what it really means for him to love you like that. Because it manifests itself in our life when we, when we say, I know God loves me, but deep down we wonder if he really does. Does he really love me like that? There's another kind of love, and it's a, it's a love that's a physical attraction. It's eros which is that physical attraction. The love that Jesus speaks of is the, in the great commandment is the noblest, the purest, the highest form of self-sacrificing love that each person is commanded to have toward God. What about the heart? That's intelligent love. Let's start talking about that. The heart is intelligent love. Intelligent love. The Hebrew understanding of the word of the heart refers to the core of one's being. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. It says watch over your heart with all diligence. Why do I got to watch over my heart? Because every issue in life comes out of my heart. Every issue. The heart is the intellect which produces the thoughts, the words, and the actions. So Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7 says, As a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. So what's inside of my heart is really me. It's a manifestation of who I am. The intellectual part of man is the most often seen in terms of his heart, uh, but although the word is sometimes used to describe other aspects of human nature, we say, how's your heart doing? What do we mean by that? I got a broken heart. An idiom, right? We use that term. I got a broken heart. My heart is really sad. 
You know, we use it a lot of different ways, right? Well, the Bible does the same thing. How about the word soul? That has to do with emotional love, emotional love. Matthew seems to have the word soul in reference to emotions, where in Matthew 26 and verse 38, if you want to jot that down and look it up, he said, Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. You ever think about Jesus being exceedingly sorrowful? The soul is just broken. You ever been broken? You ever just, you know, got all alone, you're, you know, it's the middle of the night, you're laying in bed, and you just, something hits you, and your soul is exceedingly sorrowful. You don't even know what to do with it. That's a human emotion, right? Jesus had that same human emotion. How about the mind? He said, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. The mind is your willing love. Are you willing to love God? The Lord replaced the word might in Deuteronomy 6, 5 when he requoted it with the word mind. He said, well, how come he's saying might in the Old Testament and mind in the New Testament? He wasn't misquoting it because the mind is simply another way of communicating might. Have you ever been, you ever met somebody strong-minded? It's might, isn't it? You know, convincing, you know, just stuck into something. Okay? Um, the Greek word translated might is a broad word that has to do with the intention and the will of man. Do you know the, the only way you can really love God this way is with your will? If you try to love him with your feelings, you're not going to love him. I don't feel God loves me today. So? So? What does that mean? If you feel like you're not going to heaven, are you going? I don't feel like that chair you're sitting on is going to hold you up. What's it doing? See, it has no basis. Feelings, feelings are just, you know, in some cases when you're trying to test truth, they're almost, almost a hindrance, aren't they? Because you can get so fooled by feelings, right? You ever felt like you love somebody? I mean, let's just go back a few years you know, and you're dating, you're 15, you ever feel like you love somebody and yet you didn't marry them? Well, maybe they didn't feel like they loved you. Well, those feelings you can't base your future on, right? But what we do as Christians, we get saved by an act of our will when we choose to believe in, the, in what God has revealed to us, and then we're done with it. Now we're trying to live our entire life by feelings, Our daughter was struggled a lot when she was in junior high. She said she felt like people didn't like her. I said, well, do you, have they told you that? No. I just know it. No, you don't know it. And then, you know, there was one particular girl that she talked about that she said, she just doesn't like me. She's never liked me. You know, a couple of weeks later, she's her best friend. I said, I thought there was a girl that didn't like you. Yeah, I was wrong. I was wrong. The mind can be used in the idea of, uh, of moving ahead, of energy, you know, in, in Scripture. How about strength? How do you love God? That's serving love, serving love. You ever been asked to serve and do something and you didn't want to do it because it was just work or time or, you know, and you, you know, they said, hey, we need some people to move some chairs, and you looked around for the quickest time you could get out of Dodge, right? You ever had that? I mean, I've done that. 
I mean, over the years in ministry, and, and I'll just say everywhere but Influence Church, that way I'm safe. Over the years in ministry, I can look back and I can remember people that were just too much work. And I'd see them come and I'd go, no, no, I can't do it today. I'm just worn out, you know. And it wasn't that I hated them. I just, I didn't have anything left, you know. And God would say, love them, go serve them anyway. How about those calls when you get in the middle of the night from somebody that wants you to help them? No, why did I answer the phone? Right? Serving love. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he went it further. And give my life as a ransom for many. I'm going to tell you, I don't, if we're not serving him, I'm not sure we're fully loving him. I'm just not sure we are. Mark adds to the word in his reference to the Scripture the word strength, which refers to man's physical capacity. He is to love God even with his entire physical being. There's a certain overlapping in all of these words, but they form really four channels of love in which perfect balance comes into play. I can't just take three of those dimensions of my love and say I'm a heavenly man, a heavenly woman, and I'm loving God. I've got to put them all together. Jesus didn't say, you know, pick one. Do you love, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's good. You get 25%, that's cool. 50%, 75%. No, he's, he, he, put the, he put the standard so much higher on us, right? There's a certain amount of overlapping in these, but we're commanded to love God with all of our intellectual, emotional, volitional, and physical parts of our being. Let's look at the commitment of our Lord, the commitment of our Lord. Do you think, uh, do you think we, we use any, any religious rituals in our faith? Anybody here, religious rituals? What do you think? What would be a religious ritual we have? Yeah, Tom, what? Communion? Okay, would that be a religious? It could be a ritual, right? It could be like a legitimate heart experience, right? Just celebrating that covenant of, of, of sacrifice of Christ, okay? So it could, so something that's positive could turn into a ritual. What else? Going to church could be considered a ritual, right? Praying before your food, yeah. yeah I had a friend that always prayed at the end. He said, I want to, if it's not good, I don't want to bless it, you know? Right? What, what's another ritual? Okay, religious ritual. That's, that's probably just a good idea, right, using alarm clock. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, praying. Wow, I can do that. I can go through a ritual of prayer, can't you? What else? Bible reading can be a ritual, right? Are all rituals bad? No, they're not, right? Some of them, you know, they, they, they help us get into a routine or a discipline, right, of walking with God. Okay. Any other rituals come to mind? Yeah. Right. And, and and that could have meaning though, right? Right? Or it could be just an empty ritual too. I'm just going to go through it. 
I, I'm going to say something that's a little bit weird here. I almost think that some rituals we ought to do if we want to, we can rename them, not call them rituals. But if, if the only way we can get ourselves doing it is a ritual, we ought to do it. How about like reading my Bible? That, that can, you know, you say, well, I don't want to read it. Well, read it anyway. Every time I say I don't want to read or I want to just relax or I want to just do something, and then I pick it up and I start reading, I go, wow, this is so good. God just showed me something here. Why was I so hard-headed? Because I'm earthly, I'm an earthly man a lot of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And duty is kind of viewed, it's a word almost that doesn't even get used anymore, but it, it really is a good word, and it really does carry a lot of weight in our lives, doesn't it? Okay? Um. There, there's something that, that there's a dynamic that happens when we start to look into the Word of God and let it start to minister to us because what happens is that our spirit resonates with the Spirit of God right in that Scripture and begins to open up our eyes to things. What's a, what would be another, another ritual I would think would be good would be prayer. I don't know what it is. If, if, you, I, if I wake up in the middle of the night and, and I can't sleep, I'll just go ahead and pray, but what if I'm laying in bed and doing it, it doesn't do much good. I'm still, I don't feel like I'm connected for some reason. I don't know why. Now, maybe you you can do that. Uh, and it's not that I get sleepy and fall asleep. I'm No, I'm wide awake. I'm buzzed. I'm going, why am I awake? I don't want to be awake, God. But if I get up and I use some action, I take my will and say, I'm not going to try to see how comfortable I can be here. I'm going to take serious that this might be a prompting of the Spirit of God and for me, the most effective prayer I have is either, number one, walking around talking out loud, but if my wife's sleeping in bed, I'm not going to wake her up and then get her going, well, I wasn't being prompted, right? But the, 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 if, that's, if I can't do that, the most effective is I get on my knees, and I have, I have a chair, and I have a little stool in front of it, and I put my elbows on there, and I just lean over that, and I pray. And I don't know what it is. There's something different about that moment. Now, it may be that you have that similar. You may have something different. But it, there, for me, I can tell there's a radical difference. It's radically different. Yeah, Jack? No, I can't. I don't concentrate for some reason. I, 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 my, I can't focus on God. In fact, if I'm not talking out loud in prayer, my mind just goes in a million directions. You know, I'm praying in my spiritual man here, but in my in my natural man, I'm thinking about stuff, and I don't like to think about stuff when I'm praying. I want to, you know, and I think that's what either walking around and talking out loud does, or getting on my knees and getting a position and a posture of prayer does for me. So, because I really, I do, I, I struggle with that. I lay in bed and I'm praying and I'm thinking, I'm just going to pray right here. I'm comfortable. I'm in place. You know, everything's working good for me right now. And I just can't even do it. I can't do it. And it may, it's a, maybe it's a mental thing. I don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But are you, are you being vocal with that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. 
That's good. Yeah. Well, if I'm laying in bed, I'm not praying out loud because I don't want to wake my wife. Yeah, she's a light sleeper. <laughs> I get in trouble. What are you doing? I, I'm praying. Oh, I guess I should get up and pray. Then I'm like, I'm, now I'm guilty. Okay, what else? Anybody else? Anybody else on this one? Any of your sleep? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know what? It, what is really almost weird? Isn't it weird that you can? I can be talking to you right now, but I can be praying at the same time. I can be communicating in my spiritual man at the same time. Isn't that? Isn't that almost weird? It really is a little bit weird, right? I mean, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Weird. It's just a weird thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, now let's take that thought right there, and let's think about it is your spirit man, right? Okay, God created you body, soul, and spirit, right? We all on the same page here? Okay. In your spirit man, in your spirit, little s, okay, we're going to use that versus the Holy Spirit, capital S, okay? In your spirit, man, the Holy Spirit indwells and speaks, right? Okay. So what we want to do is we want to develop or expand the capacity of our spirit, man. Now, take your Bible and go to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, let's go to verse 12. Okay, Hebrews chapter 4. And verse 12. Got it? You know, back up to verse 11, because this is a question somebody asked me this Sunday, and it was pretty good to, to kind of go for it. Uh, Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest... It's talking about Sabbath day rest is not a day we keep, but a relationship we enter into. Lest anyone fall according to the same uh, disobedience, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, we know that pretty well, right? So how does it pierce? I mean, what does it do to you? How, is it, how do we know that it's, uh, it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword? How do we know that? How do you know that? How do you experience that? Okay, relevant moment by moment. Good. What else? Yeah, God, you know, you're reading and God's going, that's for you. Okay, what else? Okay, so detection of truth from error. Okay, what else? Okay, now, power. Okay, now let's go, let's read on a little bit. What does it say here? It says, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. 
the joints, right, and the marrow, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now watch this. So here's your spirit man, little s, right? And here's your soulish man, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now watch what it says. Let's just let this microphone be the Word of God for right now, okay? And here's your spirit man, little s, and here's your soul. What it says is it's a divider of soul and spirit. You see that, what it's doing? When the Word of God is applied to me, it begins to divide the soul and the spirit. Why is that important? You want to walk in the spirit, and what happens is the soulish man contaminates the spirit man. So when I read the Word of God, it separates the two. That promise isn't given in prayer, by the way. It doesn't tell you you can get that promise in the prayer. It says just like you could take a bone and you could scrape out the marrow, so you can separate out the soulish man and the spiritual man. When I do that, now my spirit is unhindered by my mind, my will, and my emotions, and I can freely receive and develop the spiritual man that is inside of me, the heavenly man. If I don't do that, they become intermingled, and what I do is I apply my ideas to God, and, and, I, and, I, and I convolute what God is trying to do and expand in my spirit man. So let's just say that I, in this process of taking the word and applying that, as I begin to divide the soul and the spirit, now when I'm doing that, so I want to apply the word of God in, so the spiritual man inside of me can then expand and grow. Because what I can do is I can have a sorrow, the Bible says, according to the world. Or I can have a sorrow that is from God. Sorrow from the world is I'm upset and I cry. Okay? Sorrow from the, from the spiritual man leads me to change and repentance. When I get my spiritual man free, now God can fully download into my spirit man the stuff I need to hear. That gives me greater capacity when I pray to connect with him quicker. Quicker. So if I look at this scripture right here, it's, it's so powerful and it just kind of gets lost because we think about, oh, the Bible's so powerful, it's living and active. Of course it is. But what's it really trying to do? Pierce something. You ever cut your finger? I mean, the worst is right, the paper cut. But what you're doing is you're dividing skin. And you're opening up something, right? You're revealing something. When you take the Word of God, it says the Word of God pierces even to the division. I didn't know there was a division until now. And this idea is there is, when I do that, there is a regenerative factor that happens. My spiritual man starts to regenerate into the likeness of God. There's an effective dimension to this. When I begin to divide it, I become more effective in my spiritual man, and there's a rev revelation kind of dimension to it, right? He's discerning. Okay, now, go over to verse 12 of chapter 5. This is easy to remember. 412, 512. Got it? Okay, this is how I remember scriptures, where they're found. 
Let's go, yeah, they're kind of connected somehow. It's like if I want to remember the fall of Satan, I remember Ezekiel 28, and half of that is 14, and that's Isaiah 14. See, that's the stupidest way to remember things. In your no, it works, right? Okay, now go over to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For by this time you ought to be teachers. Who's he talking to? Me, you, right? You ought to be teaching somebody, okay? You ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, okay? And basically saying the ABCs, an oracle was God's mouth to your ear. That's what an oracle of the Old Testament was, God's mouth to your ear. You have come to need milk and not solid food. Now watch this. My spiritual development, if I'm growing like this as a Christian in my spiritual man, in my maturity and in my knowledge like this, and I stop, he doesn't say I plateau and I stay there. He says I go back to infancy. I don't just get up here and go, well, I'm this mature, but I just haven't got any friends. No, no, no. You go back to needing milk again. So look what it says. This is so powerful. He says here, you have need for someone for milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age or mature, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. What senses is he talking about there? He's not talking about, you know, the five human senses, right? He's talking about the five spiritual senses, right, or more. The ability to see. Have you ever read the Bible and go, now I see it? What is that spiritual sense? Do you know you can develop that? You can see more stuff. And God is going to allow you to see more stuff in his word as you just kind of, you know, you start reading it and you go, well, I never even saw that in there. Well, there's more there. We just got started, right? Because the Spirit of God can take that and what? He's living. And as your spirit becomes what? Divided. Now, all of a sudden, you have a greater capacity to discern and to divide. See, divide things out and put them in the right perspective, and you can go on to maturity. So watch this. How do I become mature in faith? Okay? It's different than spirituality. How long does it take for me to be a spiritual man? Day I get saved, am I spiritual? Am I mature? No. Okay. So how do I get mature? Continued periods of spirituality bring maturity. As I, as I, as I take the Word of God, apply it, I, I divide the soul and the spirit, and now I'm spiritually minded and I'm applying the truths of God, I can go on to maturity. I have to have sustained periods of spirituality in order to gain maturity. Otherwise, what do I get? Just knowledge. That makes sense? Okay. Questions? Anybody got a question on that, a thought? Yeah, you're just fine, huh? Okay. All right. We are to love God with our entire being. God expects no less of us than he offers us. God expects no less of us then he offers us. What did he offer you? Everything. He gave himself in death for our sin. Why? 
because he gave us whole, his, his wholehearted love. He doesn't want half-hearted love in return. Anybody ever been guilty of that, half-hearted love for God? How'd you overcome it? That does help. How do you overcome half-hearted love? Can I give you the quickest way to overcome half-hearted love? Do something for somebody. Love is always action, isn't it? God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He demonstrated love. There's something happens to me when I serve somebody, when I do something for somebody. I don't know what it is. I like the way I feel when I do something for somebody. Whether I, I know them or don't know them, I like that. It, why does that feel good? It shouldn't feel good. I'm going out of my way. I'm using my money, my time, my whatever. Why should that feel good? Yeah, Jack? Right. Yeah, agape love, the easiest way, and, and most of the time it's translated in the verb, it's agapao, okay, which means um, I love you unconditionally and I demonstrate it. So it's a verb, okay. Uh, we can use it as a noun, but it has more, most of the time it's used as a verb. So that I, I show you that kind of, you know, I give you something you don't deserve, okay, that you sometimes, that you didn't even ask for, and that's agape love. That's versed like I've got friends and that's the phileo kind of love, or eros, that's the physical kind of love. So agape is such an unusual word. In fact, we've even made an English word out of it, right? I mean, we use that. You'll see agape auto mechanic, right? Agape tacos, you know? They got a little fish on there. They go, oh, it's a Christian taco company, you know, right? And they're going to love you if you go in there and eat their tacos, right? But we use it. It's, it. it's become kind of a part of our terminology and part of our the way we communicate to people. But it is, I love you in spite of the fact you may not love me. Yeah, I mean... Just giving us gift ideas, brother. That's all it's doing.
Okay, let's 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 just let's do an exercise on this. I want you all to find a little piece of paper, okay, somewhere you can write something, and I want you to shelter what you're getting ready to write. I don't want you to be able to see it, okay? I don't want your neighbor to be looking on your stuff. You're not going to have to tell us anything. You're not going to have to show us anything, but I want you to do this exercise, okay? Tell me when everybody's ready. Just a little corner of your paper. You can fold it over. You can tear it off and eat it when you're done. I don't care, all right? Make a spit wad out of it. Throw it at the teacher, whatever you want to do, right? Okay, here's what I want you to do. Okay, are you ready? Everybody got, I want you to, I want you to be able to write as soon as I tell you this. I want you to write the first thing that comes to your mind. I want you to write down somebody that you're mad at or you hate or has done you wrong. Just write that name down. I don't care. Just write as quick as you can. Don't overthink it. Write it down. Okay, everybody got something? Okay. Some of you couldn't write it down because you're just too spiritual. Right? Right? Just, I'm just too spiritual. I'm a heavenly man. Okay, okay, all right. Now, let's just suppose that you don't have anything. I, I'm not trying to push you in a, in a hard spot here, but okay, here's what love is. Love looks at that name and says it's okay. Yeah, I love you in spite of you hurt me, you did me wrong, whatever. You know, one of the, one of the most loving things that you see um, is uh, one of the most loving books in the Bible is the book of Job. Now, that's weird. And let me tell you why. Starts out, I mean, it looks like, you know, a guy who do, was doing everything right, and God just said, you know what, I'm going to show you. But, um, but it begins with Job being kind of a righteous guy in the East, right? He's a pretty good guy. He goes through some really bad times. Um, his wife even, you know, turns against him. His friends seem to find fault with what he's doing. And you come to the last chapter, and I'm going to show you the most loving thing that God does. God reveals to him real love. And here's how he does it. He says, um, he says to Eliphaz, one of his friends, he said, You know, my wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken that which is of me as my servant Job has. And then Job, he turns to Job, and, he, and Job says this. He said, I heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Spiritual sense, right? The spiritual man. Now my eye sees you, and I repent in sackcloth and in ashes. So what did he have? He had a revelation. But he didn't have a restoration yet. See, you can have a revelation of God and not have a restoration or a return. God can show you something wrong in you and you not get go back on the return or be restored. So it says this. When Job prayed for his friends, God restored the fortunes to Job. Job was holding resentment or bitterness toward his friends. And God said, okay, now you've got a revelation. You know who I am, Job, but I can't return or restore things to you until you pray for those whom you hold against in your heart. So as long as you have bitterness in your heart against them, you will have revelation, but you will not have restoration. And it says when, it's the most powerful word in the book of Job. 
when Job prayed for his friends, the fortune had returned. It was all about love. It was all about love. The whole thing was about getting Job to love with his heart. It's the gospel that Jesus talked about in Matthew 22 when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Job is also about Israel. I want you to think about Job, where it finds itself in Scripture. Just turn over to the book of Job. If you don't know where it is, it's in the index, okay? Tell me when you got to Job chapter 1. Got it? Okay, just shout out. You got it? Okay. So here's Job. And Job, by the time you get to chapter 23, if you want to write it down, it's chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. He says, when he has tried me, I will come forth like gold. What does the trying of Job mean? fire. I'm not going to be gold until he tries me. Can I tell you this? You're not going to be gold till he tries you. When he has tried me, I shall come forth like gold. Just before that, in chapter 19 and verse 25, he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and one day will stand upon the earth. You know what he was longing for? He's longing for a savior. He's longing for a mediator. So here's Job, and you go to the book of Job, and what book follows the book of Job? Psalm follows Job. That's interesting. I wonder why. So Job sits really in pain and agony how many days? Seven. Job's a type and a picture of Israel. God is going to take Israel through tribulation for seven years in the end that they might learn to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. In the end, they're going to be able to say, I saw thee with the seeing of the eye, but now, or with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And he says, now are you willing to pray for all those who exterminated you? Uh, many of you don't know this name. Some of you have been around a while know it. Corey Tinboom was um, was a Dutch woman from uh, uh, who was uh, hiding Jews during the during World War II. She wasn't Jewish, but she was hiding Jews. And one of her um, one of her neighbors, uh, one of the shop owners, turned her in, and the Nazis took her, arrested her, and uh, they went to one of the concentration camps. I think Birken. What's that one called? Birkenhauer. Yeah taken there, and her sister died in the concentration camp. And she survived it. But she said the freedom didn't come until she could look the Nazi guard who was did so many bad things to her, her, her family, her sister, and forgive him. See, that's, that's radical Christianity. 
Is it not? I mean, that's radical stuff. I mean, if you do something wrong to me and I say to you, hey, I forgive you, you know, I like you anyway, so it's not hard. What if, what if I really hate you? You know, the spirit, of, of, uh, the, the spirit that refuses reconciliation is the spirit of Antichrist. Is it not? It's a spirit of Antichrist. It's not just, well, it's just too much. No, it's a spirit of Antichrist. Because, you see, Antichrist says, no, there is no reconciliation. Radical Christianity says, I'm going to forgive you, love you, and even hang out with you even if you did the worst thing in the world to me. That's radical Christianity. We've got this American Christianity as we forgive who we want to forgive. That's, that's American Christianity. That's not radical Christianity. That's not, that's not Jesus Christianity. I mean, really, if you stop and think about it, what is wrong with Christianity? It is we have so, um, we have so culturally massaged it that it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't have any power. When you read some of these accounts like we read earlier of, you know, people who say, I'm not going to deny Christ, or they're, they're forgiving, they're like, like the women who are being raped in that town. We read, for those of you who came in late, we read something from an account, some women who are being raped and tortured and finally killed, and while they're being repeatedly raped, they're forgiving their captors. They're forgiving them as in the very process. There is no explanation of that. That is not cultural or Americanized Christianity. It is radical. Is it not? What would happen if we'd start living a little bit more radical in one of these areas we've talked about tonight? I mean, really radical. Wow. Commitment of our lives. Commitment of our lives. Uh, I'll let you read John 15 and Romans 5, 8. I quoted Romans 5, 8 a minute ago, but the commitment of our lives. Believing is not enough. Believing is not enough. In James, it says the angel, I mean the demons, they believe and shudder. They believe. They believe and shudder. Why aren't they redeemed? You can believe and not obey. You can believe and not obey. They came to arrest Jesus, and they experienced his power, but they didn't experience his presence. They came to arrest Jesus, and it says that that they fell back. Remember that? They, they were knocked back to the ground by his power, but they didn't experience his presence. You can experience the power of God and not know the presence of God. I believe people can get healed without believing. They can experience his power, but they never tap into the presence, and that's why they go off, they do the same old stuff again, and that's why sometimes the healing goes away. I wrote this to somebody um, who who experienced healing, and some of that healing is not sticking. Okay, and we see that sometimes, and there's a reason why sometimes. But let me just—can I just read this to you? 
I really, it was hard for me to write this because I thought, man, this is kind of strong. Um, I just had a thought from the Lord. We need to be around people who believe to be healed. We need to stay around people um, to sustain our healing. We need to be around people. Um, we need to, to, to be around people who believe in order to be healed. We need to stay around people in order to sustain our healing. Yeah, I've seen this, I've seen this a few times where people experience a really radical healing from God. And then because they experience the power but not the presence, they walk away from God, and now they're all happy because they're healed. And then that same thing comes right back to them. Right back to them. It, it's really, I mean, if I went through some things and just kind of walked through some of these things, it would, it would, it would blow your mind because I can, I can document it. So what happened? You see, there's something about the presence. We have to not only understand the power of God, we have to understand the presence of God. We have to be in the presence of God and not just experience the power of God. And sometimes what we do is we circumvent all that God wants to do in us because we bypass that presence where, where we live in that, in that sense of, of awareness of God. Just live in it. I... I, I I move, I breathe, I have my being, I live in the presence of God. And you know that the amazing thing about the presence of God, I want you just to do a little experiment with me right now, okay? Here's the experiment. Right where you are, I want you just, you can say it out loud, you can just say it under your breath, you can say it quietly. I don't, I, something like this, okay? Because I want, I want you to just see what I'm talking about here. If I just, if I just say this, I'm just going to close my eyes right here and model this, and I'm going to let you try to model the same thing. God, I just want to enter into your presence right now. Okay, right now, just be me saying that, I feel, literally feel physically the presence of God come stronger on me. God, I want to enter into the presence. I want, I want to be more aware of you right now. Would you push everything out of me right now that's not you? Let me experience and let me just, okay, everyone just kind of close your eyes right now and just kind of bow your head so you kind of get your distractions out of your head. Right now, I want you just to kind of just say something to that in your own words, just something about inviting the presence of God into where you sit right now. God, just make me aware of your presence. If you feel the presence of God coming on you in some sense of the word and you just kind of feel an awareness, maybe it's just something that, that just kind of you just know. Maybe you don't feel a, a real pressure, but you, you just know there's something different now about this moment. Now I want you just to say, God, would you just increase that tenfold right now? Just increase the, the presence of me right now. I don't need anything from you. I'm not asking. I just want to know your presence, God. God, anything that's hindering the presence right now, would you just would you take it away, God? I don't want anything to stop the presence, the manifest presence of God. You say in your presence there's fullness of joy. God, would you just take, take away some sorrow and just give me just joy right now, God. God, thank you for your presence. May there be just waves upon waves of your presence on my life right now. And may I just walk in an awareness of your presence. Amen. Now, let me just ask you, I don't want to put all of you on the spot, but 
any one of you, and maybe all of you did, maybe none of you did, but anyone here just was, did that, did that just simple little exercise, did it, did it feel different? Did you have an awareness of his presence? And if you did, would you, would you be willing to share any of that with us right now? Just anybody? Okay. Okay. Natalie, you shook your head. Would you be willing to just kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, come on up here. What's the question? The, the, the awareness of God yeah, we're talking about. Yeah. What um, what you didn't realize going into it, which often happens when, for me at least, when I get into the presence of God, that I, I realize what the stuff that I'm holding on to and what God brings. So I realized I was like a little bit anxious and also tired. It's just been an early morning, long day. And... Um, and I just felt like really overwhelming, like wave waves crashing on me of just peace and um and restoration of just being able to kind of like breathe and like let my shoulders hang and and be there. And then when you kind of went through the second um phase of saying like Lord, more of you, just that there was more of that. And um often God speaks to me through visions, so He kind of was giving me these like really intense visions of peace and of restoration. So anybody else? Anybody else experience any of the, any of awareness of his presence in just that little simple exercise? No, nobody's like, like going like this. I've just, does that mean that? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Yeah, come on over here. You just come on up. Okay. When, uh, when I talked, when I asked about the joy, uh, kind of coming in, and uh, I could just feel that my heart was kind of lifted, and it just felt like, yeah, yeah, that was interesting that it would just come in. But but again, then I then I hear my mind going, I, and it's like I can tell that it's different because uh, it's just he's just suggesting that, and I go, no, it's different than that. It's it's different than if you just had a suggestion. There was something deeper that came out of that. Anybody else want to share? Huh? Not up here. You want to share from there?
Okay, so when I was talking to Ian McCormick, remember Ian? He came, the perfect wave guy that died, and you know, and he said, um, I have, um, and these were his words, okay, whatever this means. He said, I have developed my spirit man to the degree that I can enter into the throne room anytime I want. You know, and so what we're talking about here, when I talk about entering into his presence, where is God? Yeah, he is. Okay, but you don't always sense him or feel him, right? You're not always aware of him. So what you're really doing is you're conditioning your spiritual man. You're taking the senses, the spiritual senses, and you're lifting them up so that you have an awareness of his presence. Okay? It is. And, and here's what here's what I want to there's when you invite the presence of God, you're soaking in his presence. Versus talking in his presence. There's see, there's different things, right? There's a different dimension here. OK, Natalie, what were you going to say? Okay, that's a great question. Okay, so right now there is um, there are TV broadcasts that go around the world, right? And you have to have what in order to see it? Okay, let let me help you here. Well, that's a big TV. I forgot how big that thing was. All right, so you have to have a receiver of some kind, right? Is that enough? What 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 else? Okay, it has to have power. What's the power to the receiver if we equate it to the Christian? So your spirit is a receiver. The Holy Spirit is the power. But you've got to be tuned into the right channel too, right? You can't put it on channel 4 or whatever number doesn't work on your set and get from God. I've got to be plugged in. That means Holy Spirit's got to be in me. I've got a receiver, but the Bible says in Ephesians that we are dead in trespasses and in sins when we don't know God. That means our spirit man is dead. It's quickened alive, Ephesians says. So your spirit is like this TV screen turned off. You get saved, it turns on. Now you got power source. Okay, now i got to tune in. The tuning in is inviting his presence. That's how I tune in to God. i gotta, I got to be aware. i got to get out of fill land for a while, right? When I get out of fill land, I can get into, I, I, I have an awareness. Yeah, he's here all the time. I'm just not, I need the clicker i got to get on the right channel, right? Um, have you ever had somebody say, I don't know, there's just something about you that's different? You ever had something like that? And you know it's not, you know, like you're super smart or good looking. I mean, you, you, you know, that's not really what they're saying, right? They're sensing something in you. What are they sensing? 
the Spirit of God in you. And it becomes like this artesian well that pours out. And come on now, I mean, really, right? The Spirit of God. And so what happens is, let's just say you do an experiment. Do an experiment this week. Go into, into work, go into Starbucks, go wherever you go, where, whatever you do, and just say, God, I, want to, I just want to be aware of your presence. And as I walk in the room, I want people to be aware of your presence in me. I mean, I want this to be a Holy Ghost house that's walking around and up and down the hallway. And I want to, man, I, they need to see and feel the presence of God. You know, Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, we with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of God and are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You know what that means? I can go from glory to glory to glory. What's glory? What is glory? It's the manifest presence of God. That's what glory is, isn't it? The cloud that followed them in the wilderness, it was called the glory cloud. The Shekinah glory that came down in the tabernacle was called the glory of God. Jesus is called the glory of God. We beheld what? His glory, that of the only begotten of the Father. The glory cloud is in you, but what you've got to do is when you divide the soul and the spirit, the spirit man becomes more powerful and is able to radiate and manifest the presence of God wherever you go. And there's some people that just manifest the presence of God crazy, right? You know, they, they some of, oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Okay. So we got about five minutes here. What? You hit, Yeah.
Well, and see, see, here's the thing. God, God interacts. I don't know how he interacts sometimes. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes people, are br- God will bring people in your life. Hebrews says you're, you're, you're entertaining angels unaware, right? I'm pretty sure it's none of this bunch, right? Hebrews 13. I think it's 13 verse 2 or 1 or 2. Yeah, I think so. Let me look real quick. Uh, and then Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits for the sake of the elect, that is, those who are saved. Yeah, and by the way, angels, uh, guardian angels can only fly the speed limit. Just keep that in mind, okay? Um, yeah, uh, Hebrews 13.2. Okay? All right. Now, remember, what's an angel? It's a messenger. Angels don't just come. Angels have a message. There's a message. And you, you, can, you can entertain an angel. It says, and un, unknowingly entertain an angel. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, my wife told me, I'm pretty sure you're not one of those. All right, amen? Okay, um, let me see. Did I fill in all the blanks for you? Or got Can I, which one? Way at the top? Well, I can't go back that far. Let me see, let me see your paper. Oh. We are not to go through, I don't know, hold on a second. Huh. We are not to go through blankety blank. Let me look at my sheets here. In this, I'm never going to these fill in the blanks. This is too complicated. Okay. Primitive. Okay. Come on, but oh, here, oh, here we go. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. I got it. We are not to go through. I said that religious rituals. <laughs> okay, we're not to go through religious rituals. Okay, and then and then how much do we have left? The next, the, the last one. The characteristics of obedience, do we have that one? Of obedience, that's right before Exodus 20. Our faith is validated as a result of belief and the display of consuming love. Is that all of them? Cool. Yay. You get an A. If you filled in all the blanks, you get an A. Yeah, Natalie? Well, the word angel means messenger. It's the word angelos. And what we do is sometimes in the Bible, we make English words out of Greek words. So literally the word is angelos, so we made an English word out of it. And it should have been, trans- if it, we translated it, it would have been messenger. Same thing with the word apostle. That's the Greek word apostolos. And it really should be one sent with a message. 
because that's what an apostle is. Okay? So now, now what kind of angels? We've got a lot of different kind of angels. We've got angels that do different tasks, right? I mean, God even has an angel called the death angel. Right? You don't want that guy at your house. Some angels are not welcome, right? No thank you. So angels serve different functions. I think angels are also, here's what I believe, okay? I may not be able to prove this, but I believe this, okay? I believe that they have a geographical assignment or a territorial assignment. They live in a region. doesn't mean they can't go beyond that, but I believe that they actually have an assignment, and they're like keeping guard. Just like you have territorial spirits, like you see in Daniel 10, you have the, you know, you have the, Gre- the, the uh, prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. How about Legion? Remember Legion? All those demons were right there with Legion. They were in that territory, and, they didn't, and Legion didn't leave that territory. Neither did they. The townspeople, they, they, would go, they were afraid to go out there, but they, they didn't worry about if they stayed away from him because there was a presence of evil in him. Right? Okay. Yeah. Somebody? Yeah. Oh, it fell. Yeah, 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 even around you. Yeah, around you. And the cool thing is, here's the good news. Uh, we don't know how many angels God created, but we know a third of them fell, and they became demonic spirits. You know what that means? Two to one. Two angels for every one demon. Isn't that good news? Yeah, yeah. My sympathy. I think that's fully appropriate, and I also think even more powerful than that would be just the Holy Spirit would convict them. See, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and coming judgment. So what you want is not just protection from evil. You also want conviction of sin for transformation. Because what's the greatest miracle on planet Earth? Somebody gets saved. That's the greatest miracle. I mean, it's one thing if you get healed of some terrible disease and you get to live another 50 years. But it's really cool if you get saved and you get to live forever, right? So we always want to, you always want to pray for the convicting, you know, the, for, the, for them to, to find that. And I think as a mother, a great thing to do is to say, there's something that's hindering that. Ask God to reveal that to you. What, what's the secret that, that's keeping them, you know, in bondage? Because it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So what we want to do in part is we want to pray for the blinders to be off, right? We also want to warn the wicked, Ezekiel 33, uh, O son of man, uh, if you say to the wicked man, you shall surely perish, uh, or if you, if you fail to warn the wicked to turn from his ways, then his blood will I require at your hand. That's Ezekiel 33, 6, I think. But if you, if you warn the wicked, then his blood will not be on your hand. What does that mean? What does that mean for New Testament believers? I think it means this. It means that 
I have a responsibility as a watchman to take serious the call of God to tell people and to warn. Paul said, knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade men, lest after preaching I become a castaway. I mean, that's pretty powerful stuff. He takes serious that we are be, to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here as ambassadors on earth. Yeah, Jack. I think I think the way you flesh that out is every opportunity you have, speak of Christ. Give a warning. Give it. I mean, I think every one of us have choices, and you have urgings from God, and just I think you have to seek God. I mean, I don't think there's a template for everybody here. You know, some people have a call from God and a gifting from God to do certain things. They need to do them. You know, if you've got a, if you've got, if you've been called as an evangelist, you need to evangelize, right? If you have a gifting for administration, then you better figure out how to help people evangelize. Okay, I'm going to order a bunch of Bibles, right? You have a gift of giving, buy a bunch of Bibles, right? We can't all be on the front line of everything we do, but we can all contribute in the body of Christ to the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's the key, right? Okay? Okay.